Can I invite you to grab your Bible, open it up to Ephesians chapter 2, and let's build up an appetite for that fair food this afternoon, right? Ephesians chapter 2, beginning with verse 1, we are going to continue our journey together uh, through the letter to the church at Ephesus. And I want to remind you, friends, of what I said right at the outset, which is that it is God's agenda in your life and mine to grow us to the point where we begin to take God's word on its own terms. What do I mean by that? Let me explain real quickly. When we're young in our faith, when we're growing, it's very common for us, it's very natural for us to take our situation, our circumstances, whatever it might be, and then to go to God's word for commentary on our situation or circumstances. That's what we do when we're young. That's what we do when we're growing in our faith. But ultimately what God wants to do is grow you and me to the place where we receive his word as the fundamental reality and then move to our situation and circumstances where we allow him to reprioritize what is most significant and most important in our lives. And that happens as we begin to receive his word on its own terms. We do that by going verse through verse instead of addressing topics and ideas. And that's what we're doing in this Ephesians study. If you're a parent, you know there are times when your kids come to you, especially sometimes as they move into their teenage years, and they approach you as if they know what's coming, and you know they don't. And so you talk to them and say, hey, no, I want to tell you what's coming and have you get ready for life in terms of what you don't yet know. That's what God wants to do with us in his word, is get us to the point where we take his word on its own terms. We start by talking about what he wants to talk about because he sees more than we do. That's what we're doing in this study in Ephesians. So this morning we're in verse one of chapter two. We're gonna read down through verse 10. And let me begin by telling you something you may have noticed, which is that you and I live really at kind of the beginning of what's becoming known as the robot age increasingly more and more things that are happening in our world are happening because robots are doing them. For example, I don't know if you know this, but this summer, for the first time, fully automated semi-truck trailers are on the highways in Florida. And it's going to spread from there. Maybe you had vacation plans in Florida. Cancel them because there's robots driving trucks. No, seriously, uh, that's beginning in the state of Florida this year. Maybe you've heard about California where driverless cars are beginning to become a real thing in Texas as well. It's growing and it's going to continue to grow. And the day will come when your kids or grandkids don't think anything about it. Uh, When I flew back from Phoenix earlier this year, we came into Seattle. It was very misty and foggy. I looked out the window, couldn't see a thing, nothing but mist and fog. I was kind of waiting to get, you know, when you fly into SeaTac, you get under that, and all of a sudden you see the city, and it never did, and all of a sudden we landed, and the pilot came on. I'll never forget what he said. He said, hey, ladies and gentlemen, congratulations, you're one of the first crews that was completely landed by autopilot, by a robot. He said, I had nothing to do with that, so don't blame me for the bump at the end, but... I thought to myself, oh my goodness, a robot was flying the airplane that I was on. And we, This is going to happen more and more. Our manufacturing is slowly being overtaken by robots. We live at the beginning of the robot's age. And you would think with all the sophistication that we have, that something as simple as teaching a robot to walk would be easy. But do you know that, in fact, teaching a robot to walk is one of the greatest challenges our robotics industry and scientific establishment is facing? 
it turns out it's incredibly hard. So hard, in fact, that a, that a company called DARPA has put out a $2 million prize reward to the first group that can build a, a bipedal robot, a humanoid robot that can walk. And every year they have a contest and people come and they try to make their robot walk because if you do, you go home with 2 million bucks. And so I came across this little collection. It's a little over a minute of some of those robots failing to walk. By the way, nobody's claimed the prize yet, so you have nothing to do this afternoon in your garage. You want to work on this? Two million bucks is at the end of the road. But here's how hard it is. Take a look at the screen. I love that one at the end because it almost looks like you and me. It almost looks like it's alive and then it goes down. Who knew that it was so hard to teach a robot to walk? But in fact, it's incredibly difficult. And, and, and here's the reason I share that with you. See, a robot has nothing to work with except its programming. And as soon as that programming is exceeded in any way, shape, or form, it loses the ability to walk. It just falls over. And in a very similar way, you and I, human beings, are born with a certain amount of programming. And as we're going to see in this passage of God's Word, it's only as we grow beyond that programming that we're able to begin to really experience life. Uh, let me illustrate what I mean by being born with programming. How many people know that your kids are born knowing how to poop, right? They all know how to do that, a lot. They're programmed to do that, and what do we have to do? We have to teach them when and where that's appropriate. Who, who votes for just leaving them with their default programming? Not me, right? So we have this programming, but actually we want to grow them beyond it. And it, it's much more serious than that. We're born programmed to be selfish. Just watch a group of little kids. And then we have to learn to be other-centered, and we're born knowing how to be violent. And then we have to learn otherwise. And we're born programmed to be afraid and insecure, and we have to learn to trust and to live beyond fear. I could go on and on. You get the idea. The Bible calls this programming the sinful nature. And the Bible says that when we're born, when we have nothing more than that, Things that are simple for living people become hard for us. Walking, which any two-year-old can do, becomes impossible for those relying on the programming 
of their sinful nature. And, and what do we say if someone doesn't grow beyond their programming? We say, well, they're living like an animal. Or we say they need to be civilized. We say they need to learn how to control their impulses. Why? Because we know that we're meant to live beyond it. That we're meant to be more than our programming. We know that. Or do we? Lots of people confuse their programming, their impulses, for their identity. And this is where much modern insanity comes from. It comes from confusing programming for life. When we confuse those two things, then we are unable to walk. We're unable to live above those limitations. And so we fall prey to things like lust and greed and hate and malice and, and gender confusion and sexuality confusion and racism and abortion and nationalism and the list goes on and on. When we treat our programming like our identity, we're doomed to never be able to walk, to never be able to live above it. But what we're going to see in this passage of scripture this morning is that what God does in Christ is he lifts us beyond our programming. Adding more programming to the robots won't get them to walk. I, I love the one robot. Did you notice they started adding extra legs? Hey, two legs didn't work. Let's put two more on. Still fell over. Adding more to the outside can never make a robot walk. Instead, more has to be added to the inside. Again, the Bible calls the program we were born with the sinful nature, which we inherited, Scripture says, from the sin of Adam and Eve. And, and because of it, life can't work unless God's life is given to us. Through Jesus, God offers us life above our programming. And that's what Paul's going to talk to us about this morning. In week one in this journey, we learned that invisible realities are greater than visible ones. You and I are all destined to encounter the invisible reality beyond this life. Every human being is. And it's more significant than the visible one. We learned that in the first week. And then the second week, we learned that God wants us to see what he does for us with the eyes of our heart. That is to understand what he feels and who he is through what he does for us. And that that happens as the inward part of us has changed. We explored that last week. This morning, we're in verse 1 of chapter 2 of Ephesians. Let's read these 10 verses together and then break them down uh, for a few minutes together. Verse 1, chapter 2 of Ephesians. The Bible says... As for you, Paul's writing to the believers at Ephesus, the Holy Spirit is speaking to us by extension. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit and invisible reality. Again, remember, Ephesians is full of talk about invisible realities. The spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of the sinful nature, there's the programming, and following its desires and thoughts. And as a result, like them, we were by nature objects of wrath. We were robots programmed to fall down. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy. Remember, every week as we walk through Ephesians, we've heard about the abundance and lavish riches of God's grace. Here it is again. God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, 
even when we were dead in transgressions. He turned robots into living people. It is by grace that you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms. There's the invisible again. In Christ Jesus, in order that, in the coming ages, there's that invisible reality again, he might show the incomparable riches, there's riches again, of his grace expressed to us in his kindness in Christ. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, this not from yourself, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. We're going to finish there in a few minutes. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Let's take a few minutes to break this down and understand it together. First of all, church, notice in verses 1 and 2, Paul says that before people connect to God, they are, in his words, dead in their transgressions and sins. What does that mean? It means two things. First of all, it means that they're disconnected from the kind of life that only comes from God. You know, if you take the branch of a tree and break it off and drop it on the ground, it will still look alive. Uh, you know, the wood will have a certain color, the bark will have a certain texture, there might be leaves and branches on it. But what do we know the minute it's disconnected from the tree? We know that it has begun to die. And that as time goes on, it will not be able to produce the evidence of life. There'll be no new bark, there'll be no new branches, no leaves, no fruit, no whatever. It, we know it now lacks the ability to produce those things. Paul says that when we live just according to our programming, to our appetites, even to our own logic apart from God's wisdom, that's how we are. That's how we become unable to live above our programming. And Paul goes on to say that this kind of deadness looks robotic, like people just following their programming. Look at what he says in verse 3. Gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. In other words, just driven from day to day, month to month, year to year, by whatever appetites our programming might throw up, by whatever impulses and ambitions our, our sinful nature might produce. Paul says, you know, it, it's robotic. And the consequence of it is that a life driven by appetites goes nowhere. Let me say that again. A life just driven by appetites goes nowhere and means nothing. We might as well be robots if that's all that's happening in our lives. And this is what a sinful life, a life given to sin looks like. I love how C.S. Lewis writes about this. He says, you know what the real problem with sin is? It's so boring. It's just the same thing over and over and over again. Another appetite, we give into it, we face consequences. Now we do it again and again and again. I mean, how many divorces, how many fights, how many heists and criminal failures? It's just on and on. You know, I have given up completely on TV. Can I just share that with you? Because it's so boring. I mean, how many times do I want to watch the same people do the same old sin? It's just dumb. Real life isn't. Real life is filled with adventure and excitement and the overcoming of sin. In fact, that's where real life happens. The best part of life, church, is when we learn to subsume our appetites to something greater, to something bigger, to something more meaningful. 
Real life comes when we live above our programming, beyond our appetites. There's a monastery in Iowa that has begun to invite pastors from across the country to come and spend a week being a monk, to do that for their vacation. I can't tell you how tempted I am. The day may come when I go. And the whole point of it is that when you get there, you put away the things of this world and, and focus on the invisible realities above all else. One pastor wrote about his experience. He arrived at the monastery and the monks greeted him at the door and one of them took him to a cell, just like you're picturing, like a dungeon cell with a single window and a little hard bed in the corner. And he brought him in. He said, this will be your cell for the week. This is where you're going to spend most of your time. He said, while you're here, if you need anything, just let me know and I'll show you how to do without it. Now, we would say, well, that's not going to make a great vacation. That's what programming says. Because it's having my appetites met. But what if it isn't? Here's the interesting thing about that monastery. There's a two-year waiting list. Why? Because people know that the invisible things are more real and that a life lived above programming is the only thing that can satisfy I remember when I began to understand the power of my own programming. Ron and I had been believers for about six, seven months and pastor preached a message about the significance of fasting, which we'd never done before. And never in my life had I you know, willingly gone without food for a whole day. And uh, I understood that that's an ancient Christian discipline. Jesus did it. The disciples did it. It's what believers do as we grow. So I, Ron and I decided we were going to have our first fast. And I was working at the Naval Hospital in Bremerton at the time. I went to work that morning. Missing breakfast was no big deal. I missed breakfast sometimes. I wasn't even thinking twice about it. Long about lunchtime, things got real. <laughs> okay? Uh, my office was on the fifth floor of the hospital. The cafeteria was on the first floor of the hospital. In my office on the fifth floor, I could smell in detail the menu in the cafeteria on the first floor. And all it seemed like I could think about was food. And as the afternoon wore on, it just got more and more intense. That night was rough, all I could think about. And then I realized for the first time, yeah, I do have programming. I do have this sinful nature that wants to do control me, to totally dictate itself to me. And wow, it's powerful. And how am I going to live above that? It's only through my walk with Christ. It's only through my experience with God. And that's what fasting reveals to us. That's why believers, as we grow, begin to practice it. Paul says that the robot life is not only give, driven by the, the cravings of the sinful nature, it's also driven by faulty logic. Look at what he says there. He says, following the sinful nature's desires and thoughts. It's reasoning. You know, those robots fall down because their reasoning is so flawed. They can't adjust, they can't compensate to reality, and so they fall down. Their reasoning is just too limited, it's just programming. In the same way, Paul says, ours will be apart from the life of God in Christ. It will be difficult for us to navigate even the simplest things that people who have the life of Christ can navigate. And, and he brings one other thing to our attention. Look at verse 2. He talks about how robot people follow the ways of the ruler of the kingdom of the air. That's a reference to the invisible reality of the devil, of this very real enemy that is sowing faulty logic in our world. He's doing it all the time. Ideas that we embrace apart from the life of Christ and as a consequence experience the consequences of. All kinds of solutions to our problems that don't work. All kinds of ideas and ambitions and desires that don't lead to the life we thought we were getting when we adopted them. 
That's the sinful nature. The devil will always entice us to look for solutions to problems everywhere else except in listening to God. There's a great Calvin and Hobbes cartoon. I'm a huge fan. We're huge fans of Calvin and Hobbes. There's a great cartoon in which uh, Calvin says to Hobbes, you know, he says, um, Susie's mad at me. And yeah, I think we threw it up on the screen there. I feel bad. I called her names. I'm sorry I did it. Hobbes says, maybe you should apologize. He says, I keep hoping there's a less obvious solution. <laughs> That's what the sinful nature does. It won't ever fail face the real solution. And, and Paul describes this lifestyle with a word picture of death. Here's why he does that. He wants us to feel and understand how something which is dead needs an intervention. It needs a miracle, literally, to come back to life. When I worked in the emergency room all those years ago, from time to time we'd have somebody in the ER and their heart would stop beating. It happens in the ER. And, and when that happens, if we just stand back, if we stop intervening, that heart will not restart itself. It can't. It's dead. Technically, in that moment, that body has ceased to live. If we just stand back, it can't restart itself. Here's why that's important. It's kind of become fashionable in the Christian world to look at the culture around us and condemn them because they have no life. And that's an awful thing to do. Paul is calling us to realize that we would have the same inability to deal with the same issues as they do if God hadn't given us his life in Christ. We're no better than anybody. We're not here to tell anybody else how much better than them we are. We're here because we know that the only thing that can restart a dead heart is a supernatural intervention. In the ER, it comes in the form of CPR, or in extreme cases, a defibrillation, maybe some epinephrine to the heart or whatever. We deal with it in various ways to restart that heart. God says that the only way the spiritual heart is restarted is by a supernatural intervention. And that's what God offers us in Christ. Now, here's where the analogy breaks down a little because the dead person or the person whose heart has stopped beating in the ER, they can't ask for help. And in, you know, the kingdom, in the things of God, we can. In fact, God insists that we do. But it's not until that happens that we gain the power to live above our programming. A person living by their programming doesn't have the resources to deal with grief or tragedy or selfishness or woundedness or fear or insecurity. She can't overcome lust and anger on her own. God knows this about us, and we aren't just robots to him, so he offers us his life in Christ, a life above our programming. A life beyond our robot nature. And it's only as we receive that life that we're set free. Paul says, hey, remember, you've been given that life. The world around you hasn't. Jesus didn't come to condemn people for not having it. He came to give it away. He sends us not to condemn people for not having it, but to give it away. I remember, uh, uh, I've shared before that I'm like the world's worst painter when it comes to the house, all right? I am terrible. There was one time I'll never forget when our son went to a camp. He was a teenager and, and he was going to come home and Rhonda and I wanted to surprise him, so we're going to repaint his bedroom. We're going to redo his bedroom. And he was like 14 or 15 at the time, so he's all about Mountain Dew. So we're going to paint Mountain Dew colors, put Mountain Dew stuff in there. and You know, just kind of say I love you when he comes back and it'd be a big thrill. Well, she got one half of the room. I got the other half of the room. We went to work. And when 
we were done, I mean, my, my side looked terrible. It looked horrible. I cannot understand why I can't do this, okay? But I fail at it repeatedly. She had to come over and repaint my side of the room before Isaiah got home. And it wasn't because I wasn't trying. It was because for whatever reason, I simply lacked that ability. I remember when Pastor Dallas was our worship pastor here at MRCC and he ran a painting company for many years and uh, we had him over to our house and he did a wonderful job. He did some painting on the inside, painting on the outside. And, and I remember watching him one day doing that and I said, Dallas, you're so good at that and I'm so terrible at that. I hate you, Pastor Dallas. I just want you to know that I hate you because it's so easy for you. And, and then, you know, I said to him, if I could just suck that power out of you and put it in me, I'd be a happy camper. Then I could paint and, you know, make my wife happy. And that's exactly what God does in Christ. He puts in us power and ability we didn't have. The power to live above our programming. If you're here and your programming is leading you into consequence after consequence and you're starting to realize the truth of what Jesus said, that everyone who sins becomes a slave to sin, know this. God in Christ will give you the power to rise above your programming, to rise above your appetites. That's what he does. And that's what Paul points out to us. Look at verse 5. He says, given this condition, he says, because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. In other words, he gave us what we didn't have. It is by grace you have been saved. I would encourage you to circle that phrase, made us alive, because what he's talking about there is a supernatural intervention. Jesus calls it being born again. And Jesus said nobody can enter the kingdom of God unless he or she is born again, unless this life restarts your heart from the inside out. But it happens the moment you receive Jesus as your Savior. And notice that God does this because of his great love for us. He is inspired to do this because of his great love for us. You know, the word inspiration is a beautiful word. I love it. it mean, inspiration means to be filled with the Spirit in our invisible places, the way that a sail is filled with wind. And the Scripture says that God is inspired to make us alive in Christ because of his love for us. He sees us. And something that was already in him rises up and seeks to give us what we don't have, which is his life. And, and Paul says he does this because he is so rich in mercy. Grab that for a second, friends. God doesn't say, this is the bed you made, Greg, because of your programming. Now you get to lay in it. Instead, he says parentally, like a father. He says, I'll help you out of this mess if you'll let me. He is rich in mercy for us. I don't think I understood that phrase, rich in mercy, until I met a friend of mine when I was in the Marines named Rick. We were down in uh, Camp Pendleton in California. Ron and I were newly married, and, and Rick was a friend of mine, and one time he invited us to go to dinner. And when he invited us to go to dinner, he said, hey, a limo's going to pick you up at such and such a time, and we're going to go to this five-star epic restaurant in downtown Los Angeles. I'm like, oh, I can't afford that. He says, don't worry, don't worry. It'll be okay. And so we, we get there and we ride to the restaurant and we go in. And I mean, this place is opulent. This place is not a place where I belong. Can I just say that, all right? And we go in and it is incredibly uh, lavish. And we sit at this table and the menu comes out. And, you know, the plates are like 150 bucks a piece. And the pie is $35. And this is the 80s. I'm like, ah. And Rick says, don't worry about it. 
He says, I've never told you this before, but actually my dad runs a multi-million, multi-hundreds of million dollars corporation. Uh, I'm going to inherit it all. He said, I'm actually in the Marines because dad said that before he handed it over to me, he wanted me to get real life experience and said I had to do four years in the Marines. And then when I get out, I pick up the inheritance. So he says, I got the bill. Don't worry about it. And all of a sudden, I'm like, bring me the $150 day, right? Bring that out. That's good. Bring the expensive stuff. Because now I understood that the one who had invited me was rich in mercy. In the same way, God wants us to understand his richness, his great wealth of mercy. And out of that mercy, he will give to anyone who's willing this life that lifts us beyond our programming, this supernatural reality that enables us to live above the cravings of our sinful nature. And Paul says that in verse, chapter, in verse 7 of chapter 2, he says, God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms. You can't make a robot walk from the outside in. Giving it more legs or hands or you know, feet won't help. You have to do it from the inside out. And so God gives us life from the inside out in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Jesus called this, as I said a moment ago, being born again. He said, it happens when you believe in him. A supernatural thing happens when anybody believes in Jesus and receives him as their savior. It happens on the inside. But it is no less supernatural for being invisible. And what it does is it begins to lift you above your programming. This is important. We're almost done this morning. This is important because lots of people try to learn from Jesus without being born again, as if getting more programming is the answer. But he says it isn't. You need to have your heart restarted. You need to be given life. And that happens when you receive Jesus as your Savior. The Lord himself put it this way. He said, no one can see the kingdom of God, experience God's leadership, the life that flows from it. No one can see the kingdom unless he's born again. Now, in a moment, I want to close talking to you about that reality. But first, let's catch the last couple of verses of this passage so we can wind it up. Uh, the scripture says that God does all this, this giving of life, for another reason in addition to his love for us. Look at verses 6 and 7. Paul says, God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms. There's the invisible. In Christ, in order that, in the coming ages, there's that invisible reality we're all headed for. In order that in the coming ages, he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. What does that mean? It means that God does it so that he can tell the story of what he's done because he knows how powerful that story is. Church, understand something. Like I said, we're into the home stretch here. Stories are spiritual. They have invisible power. They change people dramatically. This is why Jesus told so many stories and why you and me have such an appetite for them. You know, the sociologists are wrong. The oldest profession in the world isn't prostitution. It's storytelling. Get a group of people together anywhere, and sooner or later, someone will tell a story. And then someone else will. 
And then someone else will, and on and on it goes. And some of those stories will shape us just as surely as the wind and the water carves the mountains. And when we hear the stories, we will laugh and we will cry and we will think and we will feel and we will live. Stories are oxygen for the soul. We can't live without them. And Paul is saying that God saves us by his grace so he can tell the stories. Not only to the other people in our lives, but also he talks about telling them in the coming ages. Over in verse 10 of chapter 3, he's going to talk about some of that audience, which is beings beyond our perception right now, angelic and otherwise. He saves us so he can tell the stories of us being saved. Imagine how awesome it will be when we gather together at the Father's house and hear the story of how God saved Greg from lust and Weston from greed. How he saved Allison from pride and Josh from his temper and how he saved Brent from getting hooked on daytime soap operas and all the other great stories that are out there. Imagine what that's going to be like. I can't wait to hear the whole story of how he brought each one of us back to life and how he taught us the joy of, of being like Jesus and then turned us into a, a bunch of little mini superheroes who spread out into the world and did stuff for each other. I can't wait to hear the story of what he's doing with you. No, no movie blockbuster, no Hollywood extravaganza, no art house drama can compare to the real stories of what God does in saving us. And, and understand, church, it's not just the stories themselves. It's not the narrative as if it's entertainment. No, 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 it's not that at all. It's what the stories reveal about the God who is the hero at the center of all of them. It's what the stories reveal about him. Let, let me share a story. We're almost done. When I was a young pastor, um, just starting out first year, rookie, green, wet, behind the ears, you name it, Ron and I were serving a church in Lacey, Washington. And of course, with the nearness of the military bases down there, we had a number of military folks in the, in the congregation. And uh, there was one uh, man and his wife that, uh, you know, you, I noticed them as the week started to go by. They always kind of sat in one spot. They were always very neatly dressed. He always had a bow tie and he sat with her and they were just kind of the people you sort of say, someday I want to be like you, you know, that kind of a thing. And and I would do my pastor thing, trying to make everybody feel welcome. I'd always greet them, and they were always very proper, polite, and formal. But, you know, you could also tell a little bit reserved. And, and so, you know, I never got to know them well as the months began to go by until we got to that summer, and we were going to have a church picnic. And so on that particular Sunday, you know, they were waiting around after service for us to head out and start the picnic and people were doing stuff. And, and finally, I got to talk to him for a few minutes and sort of really kind of connect. And so we're standing there talking and, and he says to me, he says, Pastor Greg, I just want you to know, I just love it when you share some of your stories from being in the military. He said, because the military was my career. That was my life. That was what uh, I spent my life doing. And I was like, oh, wow. And of course, once he told that, now I want to find out more and asking questions. And so I'm asking him and asking him. And as I'm asking him, I begin to notice a certain reluctance on his part. He doesn't seem to want to be very forthcoming about his military career. And, and me, I'm a bull in a china closet. I'm just now, I want to know why he doesn't want to tell me, right? So I'm just, where'd you go? And what'd you do? And when was it? And where were you? And blah, blah, blah. And pretty soon it comes out that, well, he was stationed actually at Fort Lewis for a couple of years. I'm like, oh, and what did you do at Fort Lewis? Tell me what you did at Fort Lewis. And finally he said, well, Pastor Greg, I was the commanding general of Fort Lewis. <laughs> ah, 
you were the what? It's like a two-star general. It's like a giant person, you know what I mean? I'm just like totally, oh my goodness, I was just some enlisted guy in the corner and here's this general and I don't know what to do. But what happened next, I'll never forget. I'll never forget it. He put his hand on my arm and he said, no, Pastor Greg, here, you're the leader and I follow you. I was like, whoa, you know. And I walked away from that thinking, that's a great man. He understands the calling in this season of his life. That's a great man. And I walked away saying to myself, I want to be like him someday. I want to do something like that someday if, if I can. God tells us the stories about he saved us so we'll know stuff like that about him so that we will know him for who he really is, for the greatness of his love, for his wisdom, for his power, for his glory, for the riches of his mercy. And this passage in Ephesians ends by saying that we're meant to become those stories. Look at the last part of it, verses 8 through 10. The Bible says this, For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith. This not from yourselves, it's the gift of God, he did it not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ to do good works, which he prepared in advance for us to do, to become those stories. In the lives of our grandkids, in the lives of our kids, in the lives of our friends, our neighbors, our husbands, our wives, people we work with, we're designed to become those stories that tell about who he is. That can only happen when we let him give us life beyond our programming, which then lifts us out of that tired, boring cycle and causes us to begin to live in Christ. Through that, the story's heard. Not only, and here's the amazing thing, not only here in this world, but in the world to come. Please don't ask me to explain how that works, okay? I don't know. I do know that that's what the Bible says is happening. And here's the last thing. Notice that Paul says it works this way so that no one can boast. The gospel is designed, friends, in order to put you and me in a situation where we have nothing to brag about. You see, God saves us by his grace so that we will stop being obsessed over ourselves Stop trying to prove something to everybody sitting across from us and instead put all the focus on him because a really powerful thing happens when we do. When all the focus goes on him and we're not measuring ourselves by each other, there grows between us a supernatural bond, a unity, a oneness. It can't happen any other way. Let me illustrate last story of the morning. Yesterday I did a wedding up in Issaquah, a big family. I was up there Friday night for the rehearsals. Yesterday we had the wedding out at a farm. It was glorious. I, I love those opportunities. I like to be part of that. And it just so happened that in this particular wedding ceremony, the bride was going to be escorted down the aisle by both her dad and her mom, which, you know, happens frequently. But in this particular case, dad and mom a couple years before had had an awful divorce. Their programming 
had made them unable to maintain their marriage. And they were mad at each other, unhappy with each other. And here's what happened shortly before the ceremony. All of a sudden, the dad says to me, well, if she's going to walk with my daughter, I'm not walking her down the aisle. And then the mom says, well, if he's going to be there, I'm not walking her down the aisle. And all of a sudden, ah. You know, kind of in those moments, you don't want to be the pastor. Can I just confess to you? Right? But I said, I said to him, hey, guys, hey, guys, wait, time out. I get it. I get it. We're all hurting. I said, but today is about her, not you. And what you want to do right now, which you'll always be glad you did, is forget about you and make this about her. And after a couple of minutes, they said, you know what? That is what we want to do. And so we got to have a glorious wedding and she got to be escorted down the aisle. Church, that's what happens to us when we put Jesus first. When we celebrate what he's done for us. When we don't measure each other by each other. But instead allow the life of Christ to lift us above our programming. Yeah. And church, that's what the world around us needs. Doesn't need your condemnation. Doesn't need you pointing out your long laundry lists of things you know better than them. They're dead in transgressions and sins. And you would be too if God hadn't given you his life. So what we do is we share that. What we do is we share that. Can I just challenge you? When was the last time you invited somebody to church? When was the last time you just shared the story of how God saved you with somebody else? That's what we're here to do. That's what Jesus does. Can I invite you to bow your head and close your eyes this morning? As we do that, Holy Spirit, I'm just going to ask you this morning with the tenderness and wisdom and strength that you have to put into each of our minds and hearts right now the face and the name of somebody in our world that's far from you, somebody in our world that doesn't know you. And God, I want to pray that you challenge us each one of us, to begin to pray for that person. And to begin to pray with the ambition to someday share our story with them, the story of you saving us. God, I pray that you lift us out of the same tired story that comes from just following our appetites and instead make us stories of how you save us. God, cause us to pray for those who don't know you and to share the gospel with them. Like one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. We pray for that. Make us yours in this way. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Would you stand with me, church? Amen.